who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the oft-ignored stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo. Find the History of Africa podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is Season 5, Vulgar History Internationale, Scandaliciousness Without Borders, Tits Out, Sans Frontier. So inspired by all of the different places that listeners are listening from, and by my interest in wanting to learn more about parts of the world that are not Tudor England, we're looking at a variety of different places, and this week we are going to... um, I guess we start on the Iberian Peninsula, and then we get into North Africa, Morocco, and we're telling the story of a woman who is known as Saida Al-Khura, and I say she's known as that because that's not her name. I'm going to explain that in a moment, but first, big shout out to Tits Out Brigade member Bella, who suggested this as a person to profile, and then who also has been super helpful, um, just helping me find some really good resources to learn more about North African and Moroccan history. Thank you so much, Bella. So some of the sources that I looked at, and they're all listed in the show notes, um, there's an article by Tom Verde on aramcoworld.com, an article by Austin Bodetti on insidearabia.com, britannica.com, and then a few books, including uh, The Forgotten Queens of Islam by Fatima Marnisi, and A History of Islam and 21 Women by Hossein Kamali. 
And again, all the links will be there in the show notes. So you can, if you want to fact check me, because this is another one where it's like, there's not unlike the story of Ditta of Kashmir. There's not a whole lot of sources. Like there's not a whole lot of um, people at the time writing a whole bunch of different things. Like there's like a number of historical records and everyone who writes about it are kind of all looking at the same stuff and just sort of, so the stuff I was looking at were people who were interpreting that or explaining that again because I only speak and read English so I'm really depending on people who read this stuff and know a lot more about the broader cultural context so the story begins on the Iberian Peninsula which is a phrase that means Basically, the big square sticking out of the left side of Western Europe. Like right now, if you look at a map, it's like, oh, that's where Spain and Portugal are. Just like that big land mass. So we've talked about people before from parts of this peninsula, like Inez de Castro. Um, Or in previous seasons, we looked at Isabel of Portugal, Isabella of Castile, Juana of Castile. But before any of those people were there... Uh, The whole peninsula was under Muslim rule for 800 years, starting in the year 711, 711, when, so, I guess before, it's like, it just keeps changing who's in charge of it. So before the Muslims were there, it was the Visigoths were there, and they were uh, Christian people, and they called it Hispania, like the whole peninsula. The Arabic word for this peninsula was, slash is, um, Al-Andalus, so it's going back and forth between who's in charge of it and it's very much a religious cultural based battle so just a little brief history lesson to understand what things were like when in this like 800 year period and kind of like the medieval era where it was under muslim rule so the city of cordoba which was at that time the largest city in europe became one of the leading cultural and economic centers anywhere well in that area like Europe, Um, achievements that advanced Islamic and Western science came from Al-Andalus, including major advances in trigonometry, astronomy, surgery, and pharmacology. Al-Andalus became a major educational center for Europe and the lands around the Mediterranean Sea, as well as a conduit for cultural and scientific exchange between the Islamic and Christian worlds. So although Al-Andalus was a Muslim-ruled kingdom, Christian people and Jewish people were permitted to live there, So long as they paid a special tax, which by paying that tax, they were then permitted to practice their religion and were offered the same level of protections as Muslim people. That being said, um, for much of its history, Al-Andalus existed in conflict with Christian kingdoms to the north. For a time, God, this is just like a lot of, I got a book out from the library that was like the historical atlas of the Islamic world. So I've just been like studying up like who is in charge of what. But ultimately, so Cordoba fell in 1236. Um, It was conquered by Christians. And then most of the South started falling as well. Um, And then Granada, which is like at the South part of the peninsula, was left as the last Muslim state on the Iberian Peninsula. You might remember the name Granada because that was mentioned in the episode on Isabella and Ferdinand, or Isabella of Isabella and Ferdinand. So they were the the Catholic monarchs, and their whole thing was they 
um, finished the Reconquista, which is the name meaning like reconquest, like taking the peninsula, quote unquote, back for Christian people. And they, so that was like a battle that had been going on for hundreds of years, but it was Isabella and Ferdinand who finished it uh, when they forced the surrender of Granada, which was then annexed into Castile. And then that made the entire peninsula now under Catholic control. So that was 1492, the same year that Christopher Columbus headed out to do various genocidal things. So our heroine this week was born in Granada very shortly before it fell. Um, So she was probably around like five, seven years old around the time that um, Isabel and Ferdinand captured Granada. And so she, little girl, along with her family and thousands of other refugees, um, fled Granada to go and live in North Africa, where there were um, Islamic communities already there. Um, As per the decree that expelled them, like Muslim people from Granada, they were not permitted to take any valuables with them, meaning they had to leave all of their money, weapons, and horses behind. So, names. The woman we're talking about is best known as Saida al Hura, but it's very similar. Like, that is not the name that she was given by her parents. That is not a name she chose for herself. That is a title, and it is very similar to me to um on game of thrones and i hate how much i bring up game of thrones on this but i guess that just really shows how much that show draws from actual historical stuff but it's exactly like how on that show there was a character whose name was daenerys targaryen but she became known as khaleesi because that was the title when she married cal drogo and then to the point that people just called her khaleesi like that was the name that like when people were talking about the show they just call her khaleesi for a while, like one of the popular baby names of like people, like not book people, but like people in our world, like Khaleesi was the name people were giving their daughter. So similar to that, Saida Al-Hura is a title, not a name. It translates from Arabic to mean something like the free woman or the noble woman. So that was her title. That was how she was known professionally. But um, the reason why she kind of is known as that is because most of the records we have about her are not from Muslim sources. They're from actually Spanish, Christian, and Portuguese people um, who were her enemies. And why would she be like, oh, hey, this is my name. Like, good to meet you. Like, they just knew that's what she was called. So there are some suggestions that her, like, given name might have been Aisha, which is an Arabic name that means life or alive but I had to make a judgment call here. Not this is the first time this season, but it will happen a couple more times where I just needed to figure out what am I going to call this person for the purposes of this podcast. In this case, I'm going to go with calling her Saida Alhura or just Saida because that is what most sources call her. I don't want to. That's that's how she's known. Um, we don't know for sure if her name was Aisha, so I feel sort of uncomfortable using that name for her. But she. At least we know this was a title that she went by. So we're just going to, Saida is what we're going to call her. So Saida was born around 1485 in Granada. Um, Her father was, well, her family was the powerful, wealthy tribe, the Banu Rashid. Her father was um, a tribal chief, Mule Ali Ibn Rashid. 
Her mother was Lala Zora Fernandez, who is a Christian convert to Islam. Saida had one brother we know of named Muley Ibrahim. He comes up again later. So the Rashids, her family, were a noble clan that claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad through Idris I, founder of Morocco's first Islamic dynasty. So just like a very prestigious family lineage. In terms of um, vulgar history and who else we've talked about at the same time, I already mentioned, so it was Isabella from Isabel and Ferdinand who was responsible ultimately for Saida and her family and like thousands of other Muslims being kicked out of Granada. So Saida was born about 10 years after Isabella became queen. In terms of just like the year she was born, this was also the same time. If you want to picture like who else was like alive, breathing the same oxygen as her, um, Juana of Castile, as well as Mary Tudor, Queen of France, were both born around the same time. So after fleeing Granada, um, Saida's family settled in the southeast of Tangier in northern Africa, where her father founded the city-state of Chefchaouen near Morocco's northern coast. So Saida's father founded the city to fight the Portuguese. So at this point, yes, they were kicked up by the Spanish, like the Catholic monarchs, but like Portuguese were also doing a lot of colonization, attacking Muslim people. So the city was founded to fight the Portuguese invasions of northern Morocco. So to kind of like have a, a home base to consolidate the rebellion or the opposition to that. So he opened the gates of the city to waves of fellow refugees fleeing the Reconquista, including not just Muslim people, but also Jewish people, as well as Moriscos, um, who were a group who were former Muslim people who had converted Christianity, but Isabella and Ferdinand still didn't want them there, I guess. So Chefchaouen is today. Um, you might have heard of it, and I might be pronouncing the name wrong, but that's what it looks like. Um, if you look it up on Instagram or on Pinterest, it is a very popular Instagram tourist destination. It's known as the Blue City because all the buildings and outdoor steps, etc., are all painted blue. It's very stunning in photography. That's a more recent thing, though. Uh, Saida's father wasn't like, I'm going to build this city and I'm going to paint it all blue because they didn't care about tourism at that point. There's several theories as to why the walls were painted all blue in the city. One is that the blue keeps mosquitoes away. And personally, like as a person who mosquitoes prefer over all other humans, if that's true, I would I would wear all blue the rest of my life every summer. The blue also is said to perhaps symbolize the sky and heaven and serve as a reminder to lead a spiritual life. Um, however, also, there's a rumor that the walls were all mandated to be painted blue just to like make it be a tourist destination in like the 1970s. Anyway, it's a very, very, very photogenic and beautiful city, and it was invented by Saida's father. So, Saida and her brother grew up in Chefchaouen, and they were both provided with a really good education. She apparently, well, clearly based on her future life, she did very well learning various languages, including Castilian, which is Spanish, um, and Portuguese. She also learned obviously Arabic, um, probably some of the Berber languages that were of the indigenous people of that area. She also learned theology. So one of the reasons why, because we look at, we come across this in both ways, don't we? Like on this podcast, it's like, you know, 
girls either get an education or girls don't get an education. And it's really dependent on culturally what their fathers kind of want to do and their mothers sometimes. But um, anyway, at this time in this culture and era, the quest for knowledge was a marker of social distinction. So the fact that they were this very prestigious family, like, of course, their children would be educated as best as possible. Among her teachers was the famed Moroccan scholar Abdallah al-Ghizwani, whose father, the equally celebrated Sheikh Ujjal, allegedly once put his hand to Saida's head and declared, this girl will rise high in rank. And whether that happened or not, guess what she did? So she was given this, like, formal education of like lessons etc but then i can't imagine she wouldn't have also grown up hearing her father and other adults around her um talking about how they used to live in granada how they probably wanted to capture it again and or make the spanish christians pay for kicking them out of there like this was uh entirely like refugee founded city so i think there's probably uh she would have grown up hearing learning about what had happened to them and why and yeah so when she was around 15 years old i think she um, a marriage was arranged for her and she married a man named abu hassan al-mandari this is a point of contention in every source that i looked at where no one is quite sure if she married there's two men with that name and one was a man about 30 years older than her and one was a man who was younger and his relative like that guy's son or that guy's nephew and because they both have the same name like nobody knows which one she married but whichever one it was um he was at that time the governor of another north african moroccan city called tetuan and so she married him whichever one it was and so she became like the first lady of tetuan so a note on tetuan this was uh port city that had been destroyed about a hundred years before this by the Portuguese. Why did the Portuguese destroy an entire city? Because, so I'm going to absolutely put maps on Instagram just so you can see kind of how, what this area is, how close everything is. So at the very tippy top of like North Africa, like right where North Africa almost is like touching the bottom of Spain, there's like a little sliver of it. And the Portuguese had a city there that is called Ceuta. And that they used because they were, the Portuguese would like go to, quote, the new world um, and come back. And they really needed to have a port city for themselves right there. Tetuan was like just below that, but it was part of Morocco. It was not Portuguese. And the Portuguese didn't like how close Tetuan was to Ceuta. So they just kind of smashed it. And it was left abandoned for like a hundred years but Saida's husband was like if I fix this all up it can be a really great city for all these thousands of refugees from Al-Andalus um, from Granada and so like sort of like Chefchuan and also they could like revitalize it and maybe make it be like a port and that would like help the like Moroccan situation so that's what he did so first he and presumably Saida went with him. They had to go to get permission from the Sultan of Morocco. So Morocco, again, there's like, Morocco is its own. I don't know if it's, if the word is technically a kingdom or just a country, it had its own Sultan. Sultan of Morocco was Abu Abbas Ahmed Ibn Muhammad. And he lived in Fez, um, which was the capital of Morocco. 
And this is totally separate from the Ottoman Empire, which is like further east, but also an Islamic um, empire. So, uh, so Saida and her husband, who's either a lot older than her or not that much older than her, went to Fez to say, like, can we have permission to, like, what's that called? Like, Extreme Makeover Home Edition to Tetuan. And the Sultan was like, yeah, okay. And they also got permission to collect taxes to help pay for this city rejuvenation. Um, and so Saida's husband oversaw Tetuan being all repaired so the city walls were repaired like a fort was put up like the whole city was kind of put together over the course of something like five years so it became a bustling metropolis with a great mosque um, and narrow maze-like streets to ward off invaders and in fact old town tetuan is nowadays a unesco world heritage site so because of how many people from granada had gone had fled to northern africa and a lot of them went to Chefchuan, and then a lot of them went to Tetuan when that became, like, livable. So Tetuan is often linked to Granada and is nicknamed Granada's Daughter because it's kind of like the community there just kind of, like, all moved all together. So it's sort of like, um, in, you know, like how there's, like, a Chinatown or something, like, in San Francisco and other places where it's, like, a bunch of people all move from one country to another country, but they all live together so they can make an area of that other country that's kind of like how the previous country was where they can all speak their language and stuff so at around the same time she married whichever of these two men she married her brother remember she's a brother got a sweet gig being the vizier which is like a chief minister slash advisor to the sultan of morocco which was the guy who gave them permission to rebuild tetuan and her father kept on governing chef chuan so as a family they were doing very well for themselves they were all very powerful influential which was probably gratifying to them because they had gone from being this very powerful influential family in granada to being like refugees with no possessions and now they're like on the on the come up again so her husband um clearly respected her um she was allowed to rule alongside him let's see so again just with the alliance of like Jeff Juan and Tatuan, like reflected by her marrying this guy. She and her family positioned themselves as major players in the effort to unify Morocco against the fast growing powers of Spain and Portugal slash also the Ottoman Empire, which was kind of trying to take over Morocco, I think, as well. So now culturally, this is interesting because this is a lot of this is like the flip side of Isabella from Isabella and Ferdinand, where she had such a sort of complex story of being like the underdog and then she became queen and then she started funding genocide etc but it was unusual for isabella to have been a woman with that much power and she did she was able to have that power because she was her husband was also the king but she was a powerful woman leader and she'd been queen for 10 years by the time saida was born so by the time saida was like 15 20 years old like a married person it, it was Isabella had been queen for long enough that people were kind of like used to the concept of like a woman could be a queen and that was okay, which might have helped pave the way for Saida to take on more responsibilities as the wife of the governor. So she served as kind of vice governor to her husband. Like when he went out of town, she was put in control and people were okay with that, even though she was like, whatever, like 19 years old. So an author who wrote about all of this, Hasna Lebedee, wrote, quote, 
Saida was trusted by her male relatives, and this seemed to be a feature of Andalusian Moroccan women in general. She knew what needed to be done under different circumstances, and these are the kinds of qualities that would have made her a leader. So all of this leads to her husband died just five years after they got married, and she seemingly, apparently without much drama, um, took over and became the governor. She just sort of inherited the job from him. And the population of Tatuan was like, love it. Sure, this is great. Like, she's good. Like, let's just keep this sort of like handover of governorship and keep just like rebuilding and making Tatuan as cool as possible. So it was at this point when she became the governor that she took on the formal title of Saida Alhara, um, Akimat Tituan, which means Sovereign Lady Governor of Tetuan. So, also, so just the amount of power women had in this cultural moment. So, Muslim women in this era, in these countries, or these kingdoms, had more freedom, comparatively, than women under many Christian legal systems at the time. So, for instance, women in Islamic countries or kingdoms, like places like Tetuan or like the Ottoman Empire, they could divorce, they could keep their surnames after marriage, they could handle their own financial affairs. So there was already a bit more independence available for her as a woman. And so she became governor and, well, I guess her, I don't know how long, it depends which husband was her husband, but like in short order, like she became, she surpassed him. Um, in prominence and kind of making Tetuan more of a force. So uh, one of the challenges that he and then she had to face was um, it was hard to get grain, which you needed just for like trade, but also just for like to have food to eat because um, there was not the like land around Tetuan was not conducive to farming grain. So they had to figure out people who they could barter and trade with but also the main thing is that Tetuan is and was a port city so like every port city like it was driven by a maritime economy like people ships coming um import export but also piracy which we're going to get into so it's not like Saida was the first person to figure out this is a way that to make the city work she just kind of figured out how to make it work for them in this time and place so like Tetuan had previously been a successful port-based town, like so successful that the Portuguese had smashed it all up a hundred years ago. So she would have thought like, okay, how can we make this like work and thrive, but also not get smashed up by the Portuguese or by the Spanish? So the main thing that Tetuan had going for it now that it was rebuilt was it was the only major Moroccan port at the time that was not under Spanish or Portuguese control. So that meant that they could do a lot of trade with other Islamic places, like the entire Ottoman Empire. So this all leads to the whole legend of Sayyidah al-Hura as this kind of pirate princess. And it's that is definitely part of her legacy, but it's more complicated than that. Um, so in the book, The History of Islam and 21 Women, the author Hossein Kamali writes, Portuguese and Spanish sources sought to stigmatize her by labeling her as a pirate. The line separating renegade pirates and legitimate navigators depends on one's perspective. One side's corsair, maybe another side's admiral. 
To describe her as a pirate or a pirate queen would be to misrepresent her. So let's have a little Pirates 101 lesson with special guest star Redbeard the pirate, a.k.a. Barbarossa. So there's a lot of, there's just a lot of context that I personally needed to read up on to fully understand the context. I'm going to explain stuff to you because I had to learn it for myself and I'm going to share that with you. So in English language sources, the term the Barbary Coast was a name used from the 16th to 19th century in reference to the North African coast. Corsairs is a French word that means effectively privateers. So I grew up in Nova Scotia, so I know a lot about privateers because that's like the entire basis of the tourism industry in Nova Scotia. But just as a reminder for all of us, the difference between a pirate and a privateer is that a pirate is just generally a freelance person with a ship who just attacks other ships and steals their stuff. Um, A privateer attacks ships and steals their stuff, but they aren't just doing that randomly they're sponsored by a government or a corporation um and so in the absence of a formal navy or even for countries that had a formal navy um, a lot of governments were just hiring privateers to just do this because a lot of the in this era of like beginning of european colonization there was a lot of ship-based stuff going on so like for instance queen elizabeth the first hired privateers as well she was not queen at this point but like as an example of like kind of everyone was everyone kind of had to do that queen elizabeth the first's privateers were called the sea dogs so put that together and you have the barbary corsairs so this was a group of government funded privateers who patrolled the coast of north africa so they were not necessarily and often they weren't people like of the berber cultural ethnicity group they were just people who were corsairs, privateers, along the Barbary coast. So they would be hired out. They were also Islamic, I should mention, um, or at least they worked for Islamic government. So a lot of them worked for the Ottoman Empire, which was the major Islamic power in that area at that time. It was all kind of like to the east of Morocco and around that side of the Mediterranean. And we're going to talk a lot about the Ottoman Empire in a different episode, so I'm not going to get into it too much today. Uh, But there were also Corsairs who worked specifically for Morocco. And then like Tetuan would have its own specific um, Corsairs who would work for them. So one very famous Barbary Corsair was Orich Orich Rias, who was a Turkish man. Technically, he was born in Lesbos, which was at that point part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, But he was a Turkish man who became known as Barbarossa which is Italian for red beard. And he did have a red beard, but that's not why he was called that. And also just side note, you might be like, I've heard of Barbarossa. You might be thinking of Barbosa, who is the character played by Jeffrey Rush in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, who was named after Barbarossa. Anyway, Barbarossa means red beard. Um, and that's kind of a coincidence because the reason why he was called that is um, he got the nickname Barbarossa. Because um, along with being a Corsair, he also was just like a really good guy with a ship and as part, and he was also just um, helpful. And so he helped resettle a lot of refugees fleeing Granada with his fleet of ships. Um, and so people called him Baba Orich. So his name was Orich. Baba was, I think, 
was a word that means kind of father. So it's kind of like, so he's called Baba Orich because he's like Father Orich, like the guy who's nice. And then just some European people misheard that as, what's that? Barbarossa? Because I saw, I guess he had a red beard. Anyway, that's the name he got. And he leaned into it because it became a very famous name. It's a very catchy name. It's a sort of thing where like, it's like, oh no, Barbarossa. It's like, I just rewatched The Princess Bride, which is like, honestly, a perfect movie. But it's like the whole thing with the Dread Pirate Roberts, where it's just like, I am Barbarossa. Like people would just run away if they knew you're Barbarossa. So he leaned into the branding, although um, he didn't choose that name himself. Um, Quick side note on Barbarossa in general. So Orich was one of four brothers and their father did pottery and they had like a family-based pottery business. And the four brothers started out um, doing ship-based things because they were helping to like import-export pottery for the family pottery business. And I have to say, this is the most wholesome beginning of like a famous Corsair that I've ever heard of. Um, eventually, Orich and his brothers um, got the opportunity to switch to being a privateer. And I guess they just took that job opportunity. Um, he was also... Um, I feel like I read about so many people who are like, and this person, like he spoke, okay, he learned Italian, Spanish, French, Greek, and Arabic as well as he was Turkish. So he obviously spoke that language too. But like, did everybody just speak all the languages then? Or am I just reading only about the people who did? Like, I'm impressed by that as a person who speaks one language. And also I can say like 12 words in French with an accent. So the, the brothers, they just kind of became more and more successful. Like they were just good at being guys on ships and then they became good at being corsairs um you know they were hired by the ottoman empire so they were attacking spanish and portuguese ships stealing back all the gold well not back but stealing the gold that the spanish and portuguese were stealing from the aztecs and the mayan people and other people in and around central america so why am i talking about all this I don't know how or why, because again, like the sources are like, there's not lots, but somehow Saida and Barbarossa connected, not romantically, can you imagine? But I think they're just like two cool, successful people at this time. And they're like, let's find a way to work together. So they seem to have figured out a deal where they could just kind of divide up the Corsair industry. So he focused on the Eastern Mediterranean so that Saida's Corsairs could target, or Saida and her Corsairs, would be able to target European ships around the North Africa, Southern Iberian Peninsula area. So they weren't like duplicating work. They could just like Corsair most effectively. Um, just to wrap up, because I just got really sidetracked personally in reading about this. So after Orich died, um, he obviously died in battle because that was the sort of life he lived. His brother Hayruddin, inherited his role um, like he inherited the fleet and he also took on the name Barbarossa and it was Hayruddin so Barbarossa number two but also I think like if Barbarossa dies and someone else becomes Barbarossa then it feels like Barbarossa never dies and again that's like Dread Pirate Roberts and the Princess Bride anyway so Hayruddin became the most powerful and famous Ottoman admiral um, he secured Ottoman dominance over the Mediterranean Sea so when you hear about Barbarossa it's probably Hayruddin, who was the one who kind of like took what Orich had done and like really took it to the next level. And if you're in Turkey or if you have access to Turkish 
um, online television streaming services. There is a Turkish TV show called Barbaros, Sword of the Mediterranean, that's about the Barbarossa brothers. And I was like, that sounds so good, but it's like a Turkish TV show. I don't think I can watch it here in Canada. Anyway, back to Saida. So now that we all kind of know about Corsairs um, and what they're up to, Saida. So did she literally get on these ships and literally attack other ships? Um, sometimes, probably, is my answer. So it's this sort of, one of the reasons why what's known about her tends to end up being like an assumption of her as being a pirate. And that's like the main thing about her. And that's because most of the records that exist still are the Spanish and Portuguese records of her fleets attacking them so um so there were like ledgers and stuff who were like yep so you know Sayyid al hura her forces attacked us like she was the one who like negotiate things um and kind of like how barbarossa became just sort of like a name where you're like oh fuck it's barbarossa and people just like give up right away it's like oh my god it's Sayyid al hura and people just give up like she became really famous by that name so she would lead negotiations. In one instance, her forces attacked Gibraltar with five boats. Um, they netted booty and many hostages. Around 1520, her forces captured a Portuguese governor's wife. So they were just like, no fucks given. She was just like, let's go. So like, these are the Barbary Corsairs who were like, mostly Islamic people working for Islamic kingdoms. But there's also lots of Christian pirates too. And all of them profited not just from like stealing stuff i'm trying to avoid saying booty as many times as i can but um all sides everybody was also capturing and ransoming their enemies and or selling them as slaves that's just like what this business was like so due to the treasure that her corsairs were getting tetuan became more and more prosperous because the money went back to like funding that city city's development so she earned money from like literally you know getting booty from other people's ships but she also earned money by negotiating ransoms for christian prisoners captured and her reputation spread like into europe leaders were calling for her head like she was like well known sebastian de vargas a portuguese diplomat based in fez in morocco at the time said that she was a very aggressive and bad-tempered woman about everything which is like maybe she was um frankly I feel like I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. A very aggressive and bad-tempered woman about everything. This was, he was Portuguese and like, she was like doing really well bringing down the Portuguese. They had suffered substantial financial losses at her hands. So as per ever, they're just like, oh, she's a woman and she's not nice. Like, yeah. And so what? Another angle to bear in mind about like, was she a pirate? Is that, was what she... Like, what she was doing was also, in a sense, freedom fighting, like working to protect Morocco from being colonized by the Spanish or the Portuguese. In her book, The Forgotten Queens of Islam, Fatima Marnesi suggests that piracy became a favorite sport of people like Saida, who had been um, displaced from Al-Andalus. Um, this allowed the expelled people to obtain quick revenues, booty and ransom for captives, and at the same time to continue to fight the Christian enemy. Um, and then another quote. So this is Hasna Lebedi. So many of Saida's privateers were Andalusis who settled in places like Tetuan. Under her command, they helped her to fend off the aggressive Iberians who were colonized in Morocco and at times enslaving most of the populations. So Saida El Horo was doing the same thing to the Iberians as they were doing to the Moroccans. I wouldn't call her a pirate. 
To refer to her as a pirate is to put the blame on those who are defending their land from aggressive colonial powers. Then again, like on, it's a complex situation. So, yes, she was mostly, like almost entirely, attacking Spanish and Portuguese people. She was sort of campaigning against these European Christian forces, and that lends itself to an anti-colonial narrative. And at the same time, Saida worked with some European people when it suited her. So she was, she had, I can't imagine she wouldn't have had a personal stake in this of like wanting to get revenge against like, especially the Spanish for what they had done to her and like thousands of people. But also she was like clever and canny and knew like when to sort of back down and like side with her enemy against another enemy. But then also well, an instance of her like, quote unquote, siding with the enemy is that Tetuan kept trading with a, do you remember there was on the tippy top of North Africa, there's Ceuta, the Portuguese colony. So Tetuan would trade with them, even though they were Portuguese, because they were a valuable trade partner. But don't discount also that while they were doing Corsair stuff, um, Saida was also doing really well politically as the governor of Tetuan, which would have taken a lot of skill and intelligence and canniness and like this is such a volatile situation she was in and she seemed to have served very well um so she developed and maintained strong domestic connections even after so remember her brother became the vizier to the sultan of morocco so her brother died um presumably at some point her father died also her husband had died like she did not have a man in her corner so like with Dida, you know where it's like you know i need to have like in the absence of a husband it's like she must have had a really good male advisors around her because this was a culture where although she was respected and allowed to be a leader like she needed to have um allies who would help keep her in power so this just and the fact that they weren't like backstabbing her or like trying to usurper means that she was like choosing good people around her and even just like tetuan was getting more and more powerful better funded through all these things she was doing um she was able to keep it going the, the whole thing with like there was not grain but like clearly that she found ways to rely on trade to get grain and to keep the people there fed and prospering and that same thing you remember the part of Dida of Kashmir where it's like and then she was the queen for 20 years so the same sort of like literally the same thing happened where for 20 years Saida was the governor of Tetuan Tetuan kept doing better and better and we don't really know about what happened but the fact that she was not deposed speaks to her political skill her survival skills and just the faith and trust the people she governed had in her being in charge so when she was around 50 years old or so the sultan of morocco remember the one who when she was like a teenager they'd gone to him to ask permission to rebuild tetuan and then also her brother worked for him so they kind of knew each other stop by town as part of he was kind of like touring around trying to get support for his dynasty, which was like under threat. So he's just trying to like drum with some allies and stuff. So this is interesting because apparently she'd been doing, clearly she'd been doing fine for 20 years. But when he proposed marriage, she accepted. Why? I don't, I'm not going to say why did he propose marriage? She's great. Um, but why would she have agreed to this after having been a successful like widowed, not remarried woman for so long. So potentially she was worried that maybe some threats were gaining power against her and she wanted to have a powerful husband. Um, maybe she saw that this was a good way to strengthen Tetuan's position. 
because even though his dynasty wasn't doing great, he was literally the sultan and like in charge of all of Morocco. I don't know. So she agreed to marry him, but so he's like, do you want to marry me? Bye. Like he proposed marriage, maybe through a letter. I don't know. He was back in Fez by that point. Like they, he visited and then he left and then he's like, do you want to marry me? And she's like, okay, but like, I'm not going to go to Fez and will you come here to Tetuan and marry me here? Um, and this was unprecedented because there was no other occasion in Moroccan history where the Sultan left where he was to go marry the woman where she was. And I don't think we've seen that in any other culture we've looked at in this podcast yet either. It's always like, if you think about like Henry VIII, not that we did this on the podcast, but like Anne of Cleves, like went to England to marry him. Like everyone always goes, either they have the like proxy wedding and then they like, Mary Tudor, Queen of France, went to France. Like, the woman always goes to the man in, like, every story. But in this one, she was like, the man's going to come to me. And he did, which kind of also speaks to the fact that he was maybe really desperate to make this alliance. Anyway, but also perhaps Saida didn't want to leave Tetuan because she thought if she, like, left the city, someone else might, like, try and usurp it in her absence, or potentially just in sort of like a politically PR way. She wanted to show the people of Tetuan, even though she was going to be the wife of the sultan, and therefore kind of, well, not kind of, like the queen of Morocco, Tetuan was still her first priority. So the marriage shook her enemies when they found out about it. Like all the way up in Madrid, the Spanish king, who at this point was Philip II, who you might know as the one who married Mary the first of England and then who Elizabeth had all the naval slash privateer battles against he was really freaked out when he heard that these two had married um Sayyida El-Hura marrying the Sultan of Morocco is like a mega power couple move sort of on par it was kind of like they would be like the Islamic Isabella and Ferdinand level of like power marriage alliance like she was so famous and he was a sultan it's just like oh shit like this is like um you know the enemies of Spain just getting this really powerful new connection. So not only was the wedding like the sultan came to Tetuan to marry her, but it remained a long-distance marriage. Sayyida just did not leave Tetuan, and he was in Fez, which is interesting and unexpected. And I would suspect also maybe she didn't trust it in her absence. Someone wouldn't try to take over. And I think that partially because a year after the wedding, someone in fact did take over. So... A young male relative, and again, all the sources are like, maybe her son-in-law? No one's quite sure what the relationship was. And it's like, where did she get a son-in-law from is a great question. Maybe she had a daughter with her first husband, or maybe it's she had stepchildren from her marriage. Anyway, a young male relative deposed her. He took over as governor of Tetuan. So whoever this guy was, he seemed, it does not seem like he had too much trouble getting rid of her so at this point her power must like clearly she was not as powerful as she had been being her people were she'd been there for so long people were like tired of her or something why would someone depose her when she was doing great and she was only like 51 years old who knows but one of the reasons could have been like at this point um in retaliation for all of the like attacking of portuguese ships the portuguese government had forbid any commerce between tetuan and ceuta which kind of fucked over Tetuan because that was like their main trade partner. But it's like, would you depose her just for that? Anyway, given that almost everything we know about Saida comes from the records of the Spanish and Portuguese 
who recorded her Corsair type activity. We don't know what happened to her after this mysterious younger male relative took over as governor of Tetuan. Even if she wasn't governor of Tetuan, she's still technically the wife of the Sultan of Morocco. So some one source suggested maybe she went there to just like be his wife. Some suggest that she just went back to Chefchuan and just like lived out like a her retirement years like i don't know doing what like i don't know gardening or something or what seems most likely to me and at least one source suggested this is that she might have just been executed like i don't think she's the sort of person where they'd be like we're just gonna take over as governor and she'd be like great i'm gonna go off and just like do needlepoint for 25 years in retirement like i feel like they knew how powerful she was and if you're gonna usurp i think they might have killed her but we do not know we do not know when she died or how or why. And then after the end of her reign, um, the, well, you know, the Barbarossa name continued on and the Barbary Corsairs like continued on for like another hundred years of just like being very successful. During her approximately 30 years as governor, Tetuan became super prosperous, which is part of her legacy. Now it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So significantly also Sayyida is also the last muslim ruler to bear the title al-hura a term used to designate female leaders in the arab world who held power in their own right that being said uh, because of a lack of like historical documents but also a lack of people i don't i think it's largely a lack of historical documents and a lack of people writing about her at the time a lack of people researching her now not just her but also women female corsairs and um, we don't know like, we don't actually know how unusual it was for a woman to be a corsair, a governor, and a diplomat. Like, was she, like, an iconoclast, or were other women doing this in other places? Like, literally, we don't know. But one of the sources I read um, suggested that in the face of kind of the ongoing crises, like the fall of Granada, all of the people coming to North Africa, sort of the instability of, like, who is in charge of what city and stuff, just that sort of chaos might have left an opening that the previous gender norms were could be more easily breached um, because everything that was going on at this at this time, and that's similar to like how Fredegan and Brunhild were able to gain power in their era, or how Ditta of Kashmir gained control. Like when things were kind of chaotic, it's like gender norms can maybe kind of fall away a bit because you're just like we need someone to be governor, and how about her? She seems nice. So again, Tetuan um, named. UNESCO World Heritage Site so like in terms of significance that was largely like her husband started that but it was her success um getting money that made the city kind of as prosperous as it was to make it last as long as it did and now it's recognized internationally so time to do some scoring I do not see any candidate like we know so little about who was around her but I don't see any candidates here for the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding per Supporting Performance Witched that there were. So the Fredigan Memorial Scandaliciousness Scale. So scandaliciousness for Saida, I feel like, you know, inherently piracy, like a late being a lady pirate is scandalicious in that like delicious sort of way. But it's like, but was she a pirate? Like was she a freedom fighter? Like is this like in terms of scandaliciousness, it's like, did she murder anyone? I mean, in her Corsair business? Like maybe, but that's not like that's more just like being a soldier. That's not like, you know, murder, heist. Did she poison anybody? Was there any sex scandals? Like there's, there's very little 
scandalousness, but I am going to give her a five just because of like the legend of her and just being allegedly a lady pirate is no less than five. Um, the, the word scheminess, I feel, I want to be really clear, especially when we're looking at women from other cultures, well, cultures that are not Western European. Like I'm using the word to mean kind of intelligence, cleverness, resiliency. Um, scheminess is a word that I like in some senses to reclaim, like to celebrate women who like come up with cool plans. But there's a cultural context to this or when you're looking at like Muslim women that I want to be really, really clear what I mean. And what I mean about Saida, she was like so smart. She was so capable. She came up with great plans. Um, she was able to rule for 30 years, which means she was a good leader. And in the sense of this scale, the word we use for that is scheminess. And I think she did a great job. So I'm going to give her an eight. In terms of significance, I think, you know, it's hampered by the fact that there's so little information known about her, but like literally she built a city and the city is still there and it's celebrated. Um, the significance of being the last Alhura. And then also like being governor for so long and the effect that that had kind of on the Mediterranean and on colonialism and stuff feels quite significant to me. I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her an eight for significance. And then the sexism bonus for her is like, yes, she achieved a lot. Um, the fact that when her husband died and she was like, I'll be governor now. And everyone's like, great. That shows like a distinct lack of sexism, frankly, that people were okay with her staying on and she stayed on for 30 years. I mean, she obviously faced sexism in the sense that the Portuguese people would be like, meh, she's not nice, but like, that didn't really stop her. I'm going to give her a six for sexism. So hang on. If we add that all up, what do we get? We get a 27. So 27 is one point higher than Inez de Castro. 27, other people with 27, Isabel of Portugal, Ana de Mendoza, people from the same region where she was from. Um, in the sense of Iberian Peninsula, Margaret Pole has a 27. Ooh, Isabella of Castile, the woman who was responsible for her being, for like the Muslims being kicked out of Granada, also 27. John de la Motte, 27. This is a popular score. Catherine Parr, Francis Gray, 27. I'm, wow, the fact that Saida and Isabella both have 27 feels interesting to me. Um, yeah, so that's this episode. Um, you can check the little website that I did at vulgarhistory.com. Um, there's, I've got more notes there about references and sources. You can find our merch at vulgarhistory.store, vulgarhistory.store. God, what was the thing that the Portuguese person said? Yeah, a very aggressive and bad-tempered woman about everything. Like, 100%. There's going to be merch there that says that on it at vulgarhistory.store. Um, you can support this show at patreon.com slash Writer. That's where you can get the bonus episodes. Like we have So This Asshole, where we talk about horrible men in history. We've got Vulgar Peace Theater, where I'm joined by Lana Johnson and Alison Epstein. We talk about costume dramas, and that's all there if you just can't get enough of me talking. Um, we're on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod, Twitter at Vulgar History, and yeah, also on my website. So if you go to vulgarhistory.com, there's the form there where you can suggest people who you think might be good to... Um, profile on future episodes you can also email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com yeah 
that's this episode. I hope you guys are all doing like as well as one can in the face of the chaos of the year 2022 um, slash this whole, frankly, century. And I hope that this podcast brings you some distraction and delight. So keep your mask on, keep your tits out. I'll talk to you all next time. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! <laughs> Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales.